Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Today I'm interviewing James Playfair Hanny. James and his wife Debbie and son Robert are from Moor Battle in the borders of Scotland. It is a beautiful part of the world, clear stony streams, river flats rising into the surrounding hills. He runs about 400 cows and other farming enterprises. He is an early adopter and questions and breaks cultural paradigms. Welcome to the Raw Egg Podcast, James. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Oh, well, that, that's good. How are things over your way? Um, tell us a bit about what you're up to. Well, um, we farm in the Scottish borders. Um, the, we farm about 4,500 acres in the Cheviot Hills. Uh, we rise from 300 feet above sea level to about 1,200 um, we keep about 400 cows and uh, suckler cows, uh, some of which are pedigree Anguses and a few pedigree uh, shorthorns. Um, and we keep uh, about 1,500 breeding ewes, uh, mostly uh, chiviots for uh, meat and breeding sheep production. Um, we if you draw a straight line between Edinburgh and Newcastle on your map, where that line crosses the border is just about where we are. So, so you're, you're still um, keeping the Englishman south of you? Well, at the moment, yeah, but we might have to... Um, the communists in Holyrood are probably... Uh, they're getting agitato <laughs> um, with Boris and what have you. So we might, we might have to move the border yet and move into England. Right. Or, 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 or create UDI. Right, okay. <laughs> so I met you, James, when um, I was just a wee lad, really, I suppose. I was a bit older than a wee lad, but um, you were, you've always been a bit of an early adopter. Um, I was uh, working for Godfrey Thomas, um, running around the UK, setting up computer software and stuff, and you're one of Godfrey's clients um, in the early 90s, recording all your cattle on breed plan all the way over there in Scotland. Um, back to the ABRI in um, Armadale, Australia, um, which was quite different. And um, you're still doing different things. I Last time I was um, over there with you, I saw that some of the cultivation and stuff you're doing on the hills is quite remarkable over there. Yeah, I guess, Tom, you know, we, we go back um, a fair length of time. And I, get, I went out to uh, New Zealand in 1981 um where i met um your uncle and uh, your cousins uh, at, at tamania and uh, that was an eye-opening experience and new zealand was an eye-opening experience just seeing what people did with their land and i guess we were fairly uh, conservative and traditional in that uh, it was more of a lifestyle rather than the business that uh, I inherited and um, 
you know, I, I learned some time ago, you have to push the boundaries. My biggest problem here was I didn't get full family support. They didn't, they didn't see the opportunity. Um, but we've got there eventually. And then a few years ago, uh, we took our son Robert out to New Zealand with us to because we we have uh, a, a sister-in-law and a brother and sister-in-law out there. So um, we took Robert with us, and um, yeah, he had his eyes opened and came home and said, "Dad, you got to be braver. We've got to go further up the hill." And I said, "Go for it, Robert. We're, I'm right behind you." <laughs> It was the, the family politics had changed. It was two to one in favour. <laughs> <laughs> so um, not only though did you take the tractor up the hill, you took the cows up the hill too. While while your neighbours and I suppose forever really, um, cattle, cows had been put in barns over the winter. Um, you changed some of those um, paradigms there as well. Well, again, you know, having seen what was happening in other parts of the world, um, cows live outside very happily. We are very fortunate in this part of the world of being low rainfall. Um, we get about 23 inches of rain in a year, in a normal year. Um, haven't had a normal year for a year or two. Um, and it was a case of what do you do with these hills? Because it's not productive grass, um, but it, it's maintenance grass. Um, so we now run a, um, um, a deferred grazing system where we don't graze the hills in the summer. We keep all the cows in the fields in the summer. And then after weaning, kicking away to the hill for the winter, where it's effectively standing hay um, and it, it's gut fill. And these are ruminants and um, they, they've got to utilize it or they can. They are the best utilizers of it. I mean, to my mind, certainly in the UK livestock industry, we're all trying to um, change cows and everything to monogastrics. And to me, that's just not the way forward. No, no, quite right. And um, I suppose uh, you'd have to be very careful with the environment you're on up there too. Obviously, there'd be prying eyes making sure that you were not doing anything wrong while you're doing all this. Yeah, we, we're very, again, because we're low rainfall, we don't get poaching itch issues. And so, yeah, it, it, it works for us. It wouldn't work, for, I mean, you know, it, it's great. We, we, we sit on a few benchmarking or have sat in a few benchmarking commit, uh, um, groups over the years. And, uh, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And folks say, oh, I wish we could outwinter cows like you. Um, so we do. Um, but we, we bring them into barns for calving and what have you, uh, which makes life a hell of a lot easier than chasing a cow around. Well, you'll know the same, Tom. Um, mm. some of your big paddocks you get a cow with half a calf hanging out of it and you, you can waste half a day trying to get trying to get it into a facility to deal with it you know so um, it's the practicalities of things and then the bureaucracy the fact that everything has to be tagged and double tagged and DNA sampled and all the rest of it it's a lot easier to do it in a shed <laughs> yeah and and it, you know you had to have a bit of a different climate to us here too in the yeah. you know when you're when you're doing that yeah and um <laughs> James, um, I've always been intrigued about, you know, the local name of the town, Moorbattle, living in the borders, that you live in a place with amazing history, really, don't you? I, I guess, yeah, there's a lot of history. Um, Moorbattle gets its name from the um, Anglo-Saxon Mere Bottle, Hamlet by the Mere. Um, 
and where we are, the house here was built in about 1700, we think, after the mere was drained um, in the late 1600s. So um, that's that. Um, we had a guy in the other day, um, the other day, a few years ago now, and he was uh, a historian and is uh, a, a, a diviner. And um, he was looking for some burial sites and what have you, because we've got ancient settlements all over the place. And um, we, he came back and said, James, you know, you've got an Anglian field system there. I said, what the heck is an, an Anglian field system? Well, the Angles came across from Germany to the UK in about 600 AD, and they developed a field system with a used oxen to plow, teams of oxen to plow, and they their fields were approximately 220 yards long, 80 yards wide. And at the time, we were doing some GPS mapping, and um, we um, looking into the soil conductivity and managing the soils and what have you. And they, and, and they came back, and the, the, the guys that were doing the GPS came back with a map of this field. And I said, is that what you're talking about? And this, effectively, Anglian field system is still evident today, um, after all those years of where the soil types have been managed differently. So, so what was that specifically different? Um, Humpton Hollowed or...? No, it's the fact that they go... That, the, the machine they use nowadays is um, a magnet scanner, which measures the conductivity of the soil. So it, it, it then plots on a map uh, the different soil types in their zones. Right. Uh, so you can manage them differently because, you know, they've got different levels of P and K and nitrogen and um, different demands uh, in their soil types, depending on the crops you're growing. And so after all these years, you could still see defined lines of soil types as to what had been. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Those, um, those sorts of uh, histories that you see, of course, um, we, we don't see those sorts of um, things in our landscape from man moving it around like that. But we have, we have other sort of history in our landscape. Yeah. And, the, and in the Borders District, um, I remember going to Weatherby and seeing the the hanging tree and things like that, where it was, uh, you know, there was a, an area there where the border was fairly fought over a lot of years, wasn't it? Yes, um, I mean it was it was kind of no man's land um, right the way through the borders. It was a it was a lawless society in the sort of uh, the Middle Ages, and you know what we go back to Robert the Bruce time and um, William Wallace Braveheart and all that. Um, yeah, we're, we're much more civilized now, I think. <laughs> so you've you, you got to wonder when you see the barbarity of uh, some hu human beings around the world. <laughs> James, tell us a little bit about um, about your cattle and what you're trying to do over there. Um, well, we I inherited an Angus herd, and um, way back when I came home in '79, father said, "Well." you know you make it work or do something with it and so i did and largely having traveled um new zealand australia canada 
um, you know, we, we had to make changes. Our cattle in those days were unsaleable. Uh, the country here was being flooded with uh, European continentals. Um, so we made our cattle bigger. And I do remember one Canadian guy coming around here and because uh, we'd bought a bull from him and he came to see the bull in his new home and he, he came up here and he saw the bull, was very impressed. Then he looked round about and he said, James, he said, don't get your cows too big. This land won't carry big cows. Which, you know, for somebody in um, 1979 or no, it must have been about 81. Uh, I thought, oh, God, okay. In those days, our cows weighed 450 kilos. We've now got them up to 750 kilos average. So, you know, we, we've transformed them. We've now got them big enough. Um, it, we're now yeah. uh, running into uh, issues. So fertility being one of them. So, yeah, we're um, looking at making our cattle more efficient. Um, as you are aware, we are using some of your genetics now. Um, which have made a significant contribution. And, uh, yeah, we probably run our cattle harder than the majority. And certainly the one thing I have learned from traveling is we do not keep passengers. And sentimentality um, ruins an awful lot of, um, uh, of, of livestock. And I think the big, the big thing for me uh, is that UK livestock PLC is too human being dependent um, in that we, the, the cows and can't calve themselves, sheep can't lamb themselves, and when they do calve and lamb, the, cal the calves just lie around dopey, uh, the, sh the lambs just lie around dopey. Um, we've got, they've got to get up and go. They've got to be more um, in, in tune with nature. And um, that's where you guys are streets ahead of us. Uh, but we're getting there slowly. Yeah, well, James, it's probably fair to say that where you are is probably more, that's more necessary, isn't it? Because of your hills and your little bit more extensive. And, you know, whereas down perhaps in more intensive areas in England that where, you know, the animals are um, very close to the, ho the homestead, those sort of things can be managed a bit easier, whereas you can't really. Yeah, but the pro it comes back to genetics, Tom. Um, as as you know, you have genetic lines that perform for you, and you have genetic lines that are no longer with you because they didn't perform. Yeah, and I I think you know we 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 barked up the wrong tree in this country for for long enough, um, and yeah, it's when I think we're more focused on lifestyle over here than we are on profitability. Well, we probably <laughs> that's all right. There's nothing wrong with that, I suppose, and that gets um gets around to um a few things about you know how how things um going over there without without um Brussels because you know I, I always thought that the UK lifestyle the lifestyle or landscape as well was beautifully protected by your subsidies so that you know the small villages and um could be preserved by the extra bit of income farmers didn't need to rip out the hedgerows and buy huge tractors and plant great areas because your society had chosen to subsidise the farmers so that they could afford to continue their way. Is that going to be something that the future holds or is Brussels, uh, your absence from Brussels going to change all that? I think the, uh, yeah, we are in a, a period of change. 
Um, I mean, my my father's, my parents' generation and before them, you know, they survived world wars, um, starvation, um, hunger, um, and yeah, and and things had we had to produce more food, and we became very good at producing more food. And when we joined the EU after the Second World War. Um, which finished in what 1945? Um, Europe was starving, and we still had rationing of food in this country up until I think it was 1956. So um, there were uh, food shortages. We now have generations of people who don't appreciate what uh, previous generations went through and what hunger is. I mean, we're too well fed, and all these supermarkets we have nowadays, there's always food on the shelves. Um, and yeah, it's become global. Um, so uh, things are changing. Yes, we have come. We've had Brexit. We've come out away from Europe. Um, some people say that uh, things will change. Other folks say no, they won't. We we need to keep food production. Food production isn't well. We seem to have. We've had a policy in the UK of cheap food for generations. I mean, we used to produce it in the colonies and bring it back here. And we have this attitude, or the politicians have this attitude, cheap food, bring it in from abroad, where there's easier climates uh, to grow food than um, to grow it here. Um, which I think, you know, with food miles and all the rest of it is perhaps false economy. Um, I just don't, I mean, we have had a certain appreciation during this lockdown where we haven't got imports coming in and with COVID effects and what have you, um, food prices, we managed to keep food on the shelves. A lot of it is home produced and people appreciate, where, I think, more where the food comes from. But do enough, we'll have to wait and see on that one. I remember, I remember you used to tell me that you should, perhaps you should run two lots of books, one with subsidy in it and one without so you could start practicing <laughs> but i don't know whether you ever did that um, yeah no well again that was one of the we're joining benchmarking groups and the, the group we're in now uh five years ago when we when this particular group set up our focus was to uh be profitable without subsidy and there are nine businesses uh, red meat producers in the southeast of Scotland that are in this group, and we're all in that position now. Not only are we uh, in that position, we've also been able to put um, 30 grand uh, per working partner into our back pockets at the same time bef before uh, we need the subsidy. So that's pretty good. So yeah. that, that's a nice, um, nice place to be that you've it's got that. Uh, benchmark achieved. Yeah, it's it's life is a lot more comfortable now than it was. Now, um, also you do a bit of cropping. Rob does some cropping. Your son Rob. Um, so you fit a fair bit in over there. Sheep and cattle and cropping. It's um, three enterprises. There's no mean feed, is it? In a in a on a property like yours. It's all about balance and being self sufficient, growing our own produce, so that everything that leaves the farm theoretically is for cash and, and bring in as little as we possibly can so yeah we basically we grew uh, cereals for um it's about 800 acres under crop and 
So there's spring barley, there's winter barley, uh, winter wheat, um, and fair amount of grass, and a little bit of forage kale uh, for winter feed for sheep. So winter barley is all for home consumption. Um, we feed barley to our cows as a mineral carrier um, at, at this time of year when they're, they're, they're newly carved and just need that little bit of boost of energy and, and nutrition, um, particularly when it's in, in a cold spring like what we've had. Um, we sell malting barley uh, to... Uh, well, most of it ends up in any Diageo product, so too does uh, our, our wheat. Um, and we grow some oats as well, which end up uh, in porridge and oat cakes and things. So, yeah, we it's um, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, don't have all our eggs in one basket. James, you have a daughter, Hannah, over here in Australia too. What's she up to? Anna, our daughter, is the Sustainable Agriculture and uh, animal welfare manager with Woolworths. And uh, so she's living in the middle of New South so that, Wales. That's, that's, um, that's quite a role. We, uh, how, did she, how does she manage that from Forbes? Uh, well, she works from home. She has an office in, in Sydney as well, and, and she travels around visiting um, producers, uh, Well, or she did prior to uh, COVID anyway. Um so, yeah, it's flexible. I mean, basically, she went out to uh, Australia, uh, dare I say, chasing her fella, um, who's a farmer, a wheat and sheep farmer. And um, anyway, they, Woolworths phoned her up one day or sent her an email and said, um, did she fancy coming to, um, to Australia? And um, because at that's... Well, they thought she was still working with Mark Suspensers in uh, in the UK in a, in a, a very similar job, and um, so she said, "Well, actually, I am in Australia." And I said, "Well, you better come for an interview. We want to employ you." And so they did. <laughs> so, yeah, as I say, the rest is history. So, how much do you think that sort of role in retail is going to play on farmers in the future? I think it's uh, it's getting. It's getting more and more. I mean, consumers are becoming more aware of where, or some of them are anyway, um, where their food is coming from and how it's produced. And the retailers have taken that on board. And uh, I guess it's big business and controlling the food, the human food supply chains. And they want the best products and it's got to be done right. I mean, yeah. Social they're all life. trying to market themselves as, as as points of difference, and I'm better than you. Yeah, and social license is becoming important for consumers. Yeah. James, um, we're getting to the end of our time. We've got to ask you your um, mistakes and um, oh, right. okay. masterpieces My mis- and mentors. Yeah, okay. You, 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 wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have made too many mistakes, would you? Oh, I've made lots of mistakes. Uh, the secret is to learn from your mistakes. Um, hindsight's a great thing. And yeah, I think probably the biggest mistake I made was listening to what I thought was one of my father's best friends, um, who's, who said, uh, told me your father's making mistakes. You better come home from college and start farming. 
Whereas with hindsight, I should have gone abroad and discovered the Southern Hemisphere quicker than I did and, and spend longer out there. Might never have come home, of course. So what, what would that have given you? I think probably a better vision um, as to how things work in, the, in, in, in other parts of the world um, where you, you, you do it with all right, different sets of support than what we have in this country. And yeah, we need, our business needed to, to make changes. We just joined the EU and, you know, we, I think we were, we, again, with hindsight, we made a lot of changes to our industry that I think we're now regretting. James, what about masterpieces? Well, the, the, the best masterpiece was persuading my wife, Deb, uh, to marry me and come north from Somerset to, to the Scottish borders. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> Mentors? Mentors, yeah, well, that's that's an interesting one. Um, I, I mean, there's there's lots of people that have had influences uh, on my life. Um, I guess the, 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 there's two, there's two names that stand out here as probably that would, yeah, I, I would say were, were mentors. The first one was. Um, a fellow called Dunson Skilbeck, who was a, a family friend, and he was the the principal of Y College, um, which was which is now part of Imperial University London, and um, he used to come up and basically help my my father uh, map my career, and. Um, which is how I ended up going to Sealhane College in Devon, because that's where Skilbeck said that the boy will go. And uh, <laughs> that's where I met my wife, too. So uh, he has a lot probably of yeah, Good advice. Good advice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess on, the, on the, the farming front at home, particularly uh, in the Angus world, uh, was Tom Brewis, um, who was... <sighs> recognized globally as a uh, a renowned um, angus breeder and he kind of took me under his wing and um, helped me along my ways and um, encouraged me um, to do what i wanted to, what i thought i ought to do um, we were importing cattle from canada and what have you and we made big changes and he supported me and along along that and that's where your performance recording came from a bit was it <laughs> Well, to be fair, father had already started performance recording before before I came home from, from college. Right. So, yeah, yeah, we just uh, went on from there. Thank you, James, for coming in uh, coming to uh, in on the Raw Rag podcast today. Um, you live in a beautiful part of the world, and um, whenever I get a chance to visit, I do love catching up with you. Yeah, I, you know, I do remember those days when you were here with Harry Lawson <laughs> as well. So, uh, yeah, it was, right. it was from Kim Bone. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and but the world the world continues to go round, and the biggest drawback is Australia and New Zealand are so far away, and I suspect this COVID job's not going to make travel any easier for a while. Thank you, James. Thank you, Tom. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app. 